What are our words worth? What weight do they carry? Now, over the course of human history, it has been broadly accepted that the verbal testimony of multiple eyewitnesses is so weighty that men can be put to death on the basis of credible verbal testimony. Judges and juries for centuries now have been encouraged to trust the words of their fellow human beings in matters of life and death. Our words are worth something. They bear some kind of weight. We know this through our own personal life experience. We, we depend upon the words of others. We've heard others say, my word is my bond. And then we depend upon them and their word. Sadly, it feels like there is something of an erosion of credibility in our society. Is it not illuminating that one of the most important polls in politics today is whether or not a candidate is trustworthy? Now, just for a moment, reflect on, that what, sa- on what that says, not merely about the candidates, but also about the citizenry. One reason you have a category like that is because there's a suspicion surrounding the credibility of a person's character and words. Another reason you have a category like that is because you actually value the idea of integrity and dependable discourse. You want words that are worth something. It is a natural human desire to want words that are worth something. It's a natural human inclination to be able to depend upon another, upon another person's word, and to actually live in such a way that presumes a person is going to keep their word. And where do you think that desire arises from? There is, there is not a, a human being in this world that does not value truthfulness. So, so where, where does that desire come from? This universal desire and value in every human being arises from being made in the image of God. The God who made this world The God who made every man and every woman who has ever lived on this planet is the God who has spoken. He's delivered a word. And when he speaks, he speaks truth. He speaks promises. He speaks words that can be trusted and depended upon. Not only that, but he made us to speak in that way and to value that kind of speech. In fact, it is how he calls us to speak. And that's what we're going to think about today from Numbers chapter 30. In Numbers chapter 30, we learn about oaths and promises and vows and how they're to be kept because in the keeping of them, we reflect the character of the God who made us and saved us by the keeping of his own promises and oaths and vows. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles, open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 30. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided you should be able to find the passage beginning on page 138. I believe that's where the passage begins in the Bibles in the pews. Page 138. Uh, While you're turning there, let me just give you a little bit of context about where we are in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, as you may know, is about God leading the people of Israel from Mount Sinai to the edge of the promised land of Canaan. In other words, God is leading the people He rescued and redeemed from slavery in Egypt to their new home in keeping with His promises to Abraham, in keeping with his oaths to Abraham. 
He is a God of His Word. The Word of promise that He gives, He keeps. He promised Abraham that He would make of him a great nation and that his offspring would have a land in which to dwell. Well, Israel is a great nation, but they don't yet have their land. And the book of Numbers is about God bringing the people of Israel to that land that He has promised. And the book of Numbers testifies to the truth that God keeps His Word. And this book, Numbers, fits within the larger book of the Bible where we know that God is leading His rescued and redeemed people home to the promised land of heaven through the work of Jesus Christ, the one who would crush the head of the serpent by His life and death and resurrection. And this too is in keeping with God's word of promise back near the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Now, so far in the book of Numbers, we've seen God lead the people of Israel to the promised land, to the edge of the promised land, but sadly, they refused to enter the promised land. And in an act of judgment and mercy, God told the people of Israel that everyone 20 years old and up would die in the wilderness over the next 40 years, while He raised up a new generation to receive His promises to enter the land. And true to His word, 40 years have passed and once again, the Lord led the new generation to the edge of the promised land. Last week, as we studied Numbers, uh, we saw through a series of offerings and feasts, we saw the Lord remind the people of Israel that though they are sinners, they belong to Him, and He is going to keep His word to them. We observed that this material about these feasts and celebrations was somewhat strange material, for ordinarily, uh, we would expect the story to proceed right to the conquest of the promised land. Having thought about it, though, it's clear that it's necessary to remind the younger generation that they need to remember the same things that the older generation was supposed to remember. They need to remember the God who, who called them. They need to remember the God who has claims on their lives. In Numbers 30, we're reminded that the people of God are called to reflect the character of their God in and through their promises and vows. We're going to study Numbers chapter 30 under three headings. The principle, protection, and practice. Our words matter. That's the principle of Numbers 30. Our words matter. And the principle is what we're looking at in our first point. And here I want us to read Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Read Numbers chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, we, we've said that this teaching on vows here in Numbers uh, is here because the younger generation needed to remember that they belonged to God and were called to reflect His character. That was true of the last section too, Numbers 28 and 29. It's true of this section, Numbers 30. Vows are addressed here after the feasts because they were brought up right at the end of Numbers 29. If you take a look at the end of Numbers 29, specifically there in verse 39, uh, you read this. These you shall offer to the Lord at your appointed feasts, in addition to your vow offerings and your freewill offerings, for your burnt offerings, for your grain offerings, and for your drink offerings, and for your peace offerings. What, what vows are in view here? Well, we're not told precisely in Numbers 
30, but given their proximity to the feasts and festivals, they probably at least include the religiously oriented vows mentioned in verse 39 of Numbers 29 and those mentioned in Leviticus chapter 27. Uh, After all, uh, verse 2 mentions that this is a vow to the Lord. You'll notice that there. A people who truly love the Lord will want to express that love, not only in obligatory acts of obedience, but also in voluntary acts of devotion and praise. These vows to the Lord might emerge in the direction of promising to do something for the Lord, or giving something to the Lord, some kind of sacrifice to the Lord, or in order to devote oneself more fully to the Lord for a season. These vows might have been uh, taken on in the form of abstaining from something for a season, Uh, such as a temporary fast or abstaining from cutting one's hair, like the Nazarite vow. These vows might also include agreements between fellow Israelites uh, or Israelites with neighbors surrounding the nation. I don't want us to kind of drift too far down the path uh, of what these vows are because what is really in view here in Numbers 30 is not so much the vow itself, but the maintenance or the keeping of the vow. That's the emphasis that runs throughout Numbers 30, that normally a vow must be kept. Later on, we'll see that there are cases where a vow may be voided or forgiven, but the overarching principle is set at the beginning of this material on vows. Vows are to be kept. Vows to God are to be kept. Why is this so important? The keeping of promises is so important because it stems from the command from the God who keeps His promises. As we've thought about, man was made to reflect God's glorious character. So it's no surprise that God calls his people to reflect him through issuing this command. When a man makes a commitment, he ought not break his word. God's words do not break. This is why Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 35, Scripture cannot be broken. And what did Joshua say to the people of Israel after they made it safely into the promised land? He said, Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. God does not break His promises, nor does He let them fall to the ground, but He does all that proceeds out of His mouth. God does all that proceeds out of His mouth, and that is part of the reason that we should do all that proceeds out of our mouths. Now let's step back and reflect on our lives for a moment. As image bearers of God, as those who are called to reflect the character of God, have we ever broken a promise? Of course we have. Some of the most devastating experiences in our lives occur because we've broken our promise or because others have broken their promises to us. We underestimate how much weight our vows, our pledges, our promises, our words carry with others. When politicians break their promises to us, we're unsurprised and we get angry. And perhaps that's sin. But with our spouses, our children, our family, our friends, co-workers, when they break their promises to us, our relationships suffer deep wounds. Wounds which may take months and years to heal. As human beings, we grab onto promises and we bank on them. And it is devastating when those promises return void. Those of you who have attended weddings that I've officiated know uh, that I use a really old historic form for the wedding ceremony. I use Thomas Cranmer's 1552 Order of Service and Vows. 
Uh, in the English-speaking world, they are the most widely used wedding vows over the last 400 years or so. I'm committed to using that old historic form for a whole host of reasons. One of those reasons is that it underscores the solemnity of personal vows. Now, when I'm, I'm leading and officiating the service, some people will, will smirk and smile when I come to the service and say, Dearly beloved, we are gathered here together in the sight of God in the face of this company to join together this man and this woman in holy matrimony, which is commended in God's word to be honorable among all, and here's where they smile, and therefore is not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. In other words, be sure of the vows that you are about to take on. Do not take them lightly, and do not make them lightly. Rash vows bring ruin. Just think of Jephthah's rash vow in Judges 11, which brought harm to his daughter. Or before that, in Joshua 9, where the people of Israel make a quick covenant with the people of Gibeon and prove to be a careless covenant. Vows that are made are to be kept. And vows that were not kept would bring consequences. While this is not explicitly stated here in verses 1 and 2, this does come into view later in the chapter, verse 15 to be specific. In that verse, we're told that a husband who broke his wife's vow would bear her iniquity. If he would bear the consequences for breaking her vow, then we may well assume that he will bear the consequences for breaking his. We are called to be people who keep our word. But it seems to me that we should also be people who give our word only after thoughtful and careful consideration. Notice for the man of verse 2, there is no escape clause. You give your word, you keep your word. And, and what did we hear read earlier in the service? What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 37? Jesus said, let what you say simply be yes or no. Then James, the apostle James, followed it up by saying in James chapter 5, verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Given what what we consider here, what we read about from Jesus and James, should we take oaths? Should we take vows? Like those wedding vows? Yes, I think we should. I think Scripture actually presumes that we will. The problem is not that we take them. The problem is that we take them lightly. Our, our problem is that we take them and don't keep them when we should do all according to the proceeds out of our mouths. Our taking and keeping oaths or vows is reflective of the character of God. All throughout the scriptures, we see God taking oaths and vows and binding himself to his people through oaths and vows and pledges and covenants. The difference between us and God, however, is obvious. God always fulfills his oaths. And we, as sinful human beings, do not from time to time. We should obviously not take oaths that will lead us into sin or require that we sin. If we have taken vows where that is the case, then we should repent and seek forgiveness for having made a rash vow. In fact, in the Old Testament context, there was even an understanding that someone could be relieved of a vow 
In Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 and 6, the Lord not only acknowledges that men may foolishly and sinfully take rash vows, but He also allows them to be released from rash vows by confessing their sin and offering an animal sacrifice to the Lord. Praise God that we have a much better sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And let's recognize that we're prone to making rash vows. Christians have sadly done this often. The much-beloved Martin Luther promised to become a monk if, he would, if God would get him out of a thunderstorm. And praise God that he did get out of that thunderstorm and that he did become a monk, for he was instrumental in the recovery of the gospel. But his words were rash. God can work good from bad. He can use rash words to redound to his glory. Still, simply because God can and may use our words to work good from bad doesn't mean we should be careless in our words. No, we should be careful in our words. If and when you make a rash vow that will lead you to sin, I don't think you should keep it. I think that you should admit that it was wrong and sinful of you to make that vow. And it will be wrong and sinful of you to keep that vow and to keep sinning. We should admit our wrong and seek forgiveness from those whom we rashly made a sinful and foolish commitment to. Now, if all this sounds unbearably rigid, in verses 3 through 15, we turn to hear about vows related to women and their husbands and fathers. In these verses, we see God's kind protection. Let's turn now and consider our second point, protection. And as we do, read Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 through 15. Numbers chapter 30, verses 3 through 15. If a woman vows a vow to the Lord and binds herself by a pledge, while within her father's house in her youth, and her father hears of her vow and of her pledge by which she has bound herself and says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand. But... If her father opposes her on the day that he hears of it, no vow of hers, no pledge by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will forgive her, because her father opposed her. If she marries a husband while, while under her vows or any thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears of it and says nothing to her on the day that he hears that her vow shall stand, and her pledges by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if on the day that her husband comes to hear of it, he opposes her, then he makes void her vow that was on her and the thoughtless utterance of her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will forgive her. But any vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, anything by which she has bound herself, shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows, concerning her pledge of herself, shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will forgive her. Any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself, her husband may establish, or her husband may make void. But if her husband says nothing to her from, the, from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. 
Now, I wonder if some of you are kind of horrified by what we have just read and think that these verses represent an incredibly oppressive and patriarchal society. I've got news for you. Uh, It's worse than that. These verses are not the ideas, not the mere ideas of man. They are commands from God, protective and good commands from God. Read verse 16 now. These are statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife, and about a father and his daughter, while she is in her youth within her father's house. Since these are statutes and commands from the Lord, let me discourage you from hearing these words and immediately dismissing them, because you are tempted to think that they belittle and infantilize women. They do no such thing. Let me also discourage you from dismissing these verses as having no relevance for today, because they were written and recorded for society, thousands of years ago. Finally, let me discourage you from dismissing these verses as not being applicable to the New Testament people of God, since as the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, we are no longer under law, but under grace. That is true. As the New Testament people of God, we are no longer under law, we are under grace. And yet, it was the same Apostle Paul who also told Timothy that all Scripture, including the Old Testament Scripture, and Numbers 30, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3.16 There is wisdom here for us to apply to our lives today. Let's get a grasp on what we've just read in verses 3 through 15. In these verses, the Lord lays out various circumstances whereby a woman may make a vow to the Lord and keep it. Now stop and get a hold of that for a moment. They lay out various circumstances where a woman may take a vow to the Lord and keep it. Just like men, women may make vows to the Lord. That wasn't always the case in the ancient world. It is a presupposition from Genesis 1 on through the rest of the Bible that just as men are made in the image of God, so are women. They are of equal worth and value and dignity in the sight of God. They too may make vows to the Lord. Women are called to enter into a relationship with the Lord too. And that can be expressed through vows, through commitments to give to the Lord, commitments to fast or abstaining from something. Women may also make vows to the Lord. Women are just as precious and beloved by God. In fact, women may even have something to brag about over men in the course of redemptive history. Not that I'm encouraging boasting, but I would just simply note that it was primarily through a woman that the Lord brought the Savior into the world. No man was involved with that birth. What is more, women are highly esteemed in the Scriptures. And we learn in part what it means to follow Jesus to the cross through them. Who do we find at the critical junctures of Jesus' death and resurrection mentioned in the Gospels? Who is remaining and named at the foot of the cross? Or turning up first to the tomb? It's mostly the women who follow Jesus that are named in the Gospels. In Numbers 30, we learn that women, just like men, were welcome to make vows to the Lord. Now, what women were invited and welcome to make vows to the Lord? All women. Uh, These verses, in these verses, we meet young women who are in their father's houses, verse 3. We meet married women, verse 6. We meet divorced and widowed women, verse 9. All of them could make vows to the Lord. 
Now, you, you may be perturbed by the fact that a father or husband, if he was alive, could void a vow through opposition. You, you must have noticed this. Uh, there in verse 5, we learned that uh, a, it, when a young woman's father hears of her vows, he may oppose it. And her vow will be forgiven, which is to say that it will not be enforced. Uh, in verses 6 through 8, we learned that a father may permit the vow of his daughter. But when she comes into marriage, if her husband opposes it, then her vow is voided and she's forgiven of the vow. It's not enforced. In, in verses 10 through 11, we read about when uh, a married woman makes a vow and her husband hears the vow, he may oppose it. And her vow will be forgiven. As I said, you, you may be perturbed by this notion that a father or husband can void a woman's vow. And if you are grumpy about this, I think there's little that I can do to make you ungrumpy. But I'm going to try. Um, implicit in these verses is the notion that there is an order of responsibility before the Lord. The Bible teaches, and these verses teach, that husbands and fathers not only have authority over the women under their care, their wives and their daughters, but that husbands and fathers are also responsible before the Lord for how they exercise that authority. These verses imply what is explicitly taught in Colossians chapter 3, verse 20, where we're told that children are to obey their parents in the Lord, and that this pleases the Lord. These verses imply what is explicitly taught in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22, where wives are to submit to their own husbands as they submit to the Lord. Now, let's be honest. This is not a popular idea in our culture today. Our culture may be moderately okay with the idea that a father has some form of authority over his daughter or his children more broadly. Our culture can see how it, it might be good for a father to protect his daughter from making unwise, unrealistic, or unachievable promises. But when we step into the realm of two adults, the idea that a husband has authority over his wife, and especially that she is to submit to him in matters that are non-sinful, that is a deeply unpopular idea. And frankly, I'm sympathetic. Sadly, far too often husbands have abused their authority. Husbands may not use their authority to abuse their wives or their children physically, mentally, sexually, spiritually, verbally, or otherwise. The scriptures never, ever, never, ever permit men to abuse women or children. And it will not be tolerated in this church. If you have been abused, you need to come and speak to the elders about that and let us extend care and comfort to you. If you, as a man, have abused your wife or children, you need to repent and come and speak to the elders about that and seek the Lord's forgiveness. We cannot permit that to take place. These vows, these laws are given for the protection of women and children and not coercion. Now, feminists must be granted this. They must be granted that they see a problem, a real problem. Their eyes and their ears and their experiences are not lying to them. But Satan is. Although feminists see a real and true problem in husbands abusing their authority, they still do not diagnose the problem correctly. And that prevents them from finding the correct solution. The problem is not that men and women are unequal. Men and women are not unequal. Men and women have been made in God's image and therefore they are of equal value and worth and dignity in the sight of God. Equality is not the problem. 
because they're not unequal. Nor is the problem that men and women have been called to different yet complementary roles and responsibilities in the family and church. Because what you do does not constitute your worth and value. What you have to offer does not constitute your worth and value to society, to other human beings, and most importantly, to God. The the nature of the Trinity teaches us this. There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, same in essence, equal in power and glory. God, the triune God, is worthy of our worship. And yet these three persons in one God have distinct, different offices and work in the great work of redemption. No part of that work by each of the persons is to be valued less. Without the planning of the Father, salvation would not come to pass. Without the procurement of our salvation, the work of the Son, our salvation would not come to pass. Without the application of Christ's work by the Spirit, our salvation does not come to pass. Simply because these three persons in the Godhead have different, distinct roles does not mean that any of them are to be valued less. What we do does not establish our worth. That men and women are made in God's image gives us our worth and value. Part of the problem of feminist theology and ideology is that they ironically undervalue women because women are worth so much more than what they do or can do. In fact, women and wives are worth so much to the Lord that here in Numbers 30, He protects them from liability and exposes their husbands to liability. Did you notice that in verse 15? A husband may void a vow when he first hears of it, but if he has let it be established through his silence, then if he wishes to void it later on, he shall bear his wife's iniquity. Adam was silent in the garden, wasn't he? And who did the Lord come to speak to about what transpired? He sinned, and he bore the iniquity of all mankind in his sin. At every turn, husbands and fathers are to use their authority to protect their wives and daughters from harm. These men are to cherish the women in their lives, that they will not let them be left open and vulnerable if they are unable to fulfill the vow that they have made. What is more, they are to bear the punishment for their wives if the vow needs to be broken. With great authority comes great responsibility. And I I hope that you see the kindness of God in this. I hope that you see his love for women in this. I I hope that you see how this framework, far from infantilizing and belittling women, actually encourage women to go ahead and be bold and make vows to the Lord. They could vow to serve the Lord in a variety of bold ways, faith-filled ways. And yet, if they were a bit too bold in their vows, they could come under the protective care of their husbands and fathers. And let's be clear, this positive protective care was radically different from how women were treated by the surrounding nations at the time. In the ancient Near East, uh, women were often treated as slaves and property and less than human. Well, that is not what we are seeing here in Numbers 30. What we are seeing here in Numbers 30 is that men in Israel are being called to cherish and value the women in their lives. Now, before we think 
turn to think about how the principle of keeping vows is practiced and worked out in our lives, we need to understand what will motivate our keeping of vows. The gospel of Jesus Christ and the glory of God ought always to be our motivation. Grace is the ground of our good works. So how does Numbers 30 point us to Jesus Christ? From kind of a, a macro, big picture, whole Bible perspective, uh, we see that Numbers 30 points us to Jesus because the God who is speaking these commands, these commands to keep promises, He has kept His promises in Jesus Christ. In Genesis 3.15, He vowed to send a Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent, and in Jesus Christ, He has done just that. Still, there's something more here, I think. Uh, let's recall in verse 15 that we learned that a husband would take the liability and bear the iniquity of his wife's vow should he void it. And why should he void it? Well, one of the chief reasons, if not the chief reason that he would void it, is because the promises, the oath, could not be fulfilled. In other words, if a wife were to fall short of fulfilling her vow, the husband could void the vow, offer to give himself up and bear the iniquity due. Now, who does that sound like to you? Does it sound like the husband of the church? Does it, does it sound like what we read about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus has borne the iniquity and the punishment of something much greater than failing to keep a vow. We have all made promises and failed to keep them. But what we have really failed to do is live in such a way that reflects the image and character of God. We have all decided to live according to our own interests rather than to the glory of God. And this is what the Bible calls sin, and sin is rebellion against God. And we rebel against God's good commands when we decide to live life our own way rather than His. Our sin and iniquity against the eternal and holy God deserves to be punished for all eternity. But in His great love for us, He sent His one and only most beloved Son to bear our iniquity. The eternal Son of God came to earth, taking human flesh to His person. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man and lived the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He always did all that God commanded. And every promise Jesus ever made, He kept. Though He was perfect and sinless, he willingly went to the cross to bear the iniquity of sinners like you and me. On the cross, Jesus, He bore the eternal wrath of God that was due as punishment to the sins for all of those who would have returned from their sins and placed their faith in Him and come under His protective love and care and authority. But His death wasn't the end. For three days after his death, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving to us all that God accepted his personal substitution for sinners like you and me. And now Jesus calls all of us to turn from our sins and place our faith in him. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in him, to trust in him for your salvation today. Believe that he has borne your iniquity the iniquity for your sins, believe that He was raised for your salvation. And if you want to know more about Jesus and His amazing work, then please come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about that good news. Well, having thought about the principle 
and protection of Numbers 30. Let's think through how we can practice the eternal truths of this chapter today. Though we are no longer under law but under grace, the fundamental principle of Numbers 30 still stands. We should keep our oaths, vows, and promises because in doing so we give credible testimony to the truth that we serve a God who has kept His promises in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, we need to have integrity. Our practice of keeping our promises reflects on God, just as everything else does in our lives. Christian, people need to be able to depend upon you without worry or fear. If you give your word, keep your word. Let your yes be yes. We should not be known to be people who are flaky. We should be known to be people who are reliable. Lord willing, this kind of dependability will give you an opportunity to speak of our God. Should, should someone notice uh, that, that you are faithful and reliable? Should they commend you for that? Should they say you know, something like, you know, I, can always, I knew I could always count on you. Should someone say something like that to you? You need to testify to God. Say thank you. And then explain why you try to be dependable. Because you want as best you can to try and reflect the character of God. Being dependable is part of our witness. As employers, employees, friends, families, family members, co-workers, neighbors. This is part of how we reflect God and testify to His goodness in our lives. Now let me just drill down specifically and address those whom this passage addresses. Men, women, children, and singles. Men... uh, Brothers, in addition to being faithful and dependable, in addition to being a man of your word, you also need to ensure that you are protecting those under your care. If you are not sobered by what the Bible teaches you, if you are not somewhat scared about what it means to be a man reflecting the character of God, then I'm not sure you fully comprehend the Bible's teaching about manhood. You need to be a shield and a shelter. You need to be one who is sacrificing your own safety and comfort so that those under your care can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you love and cherish them. If you are married and you have children, then you need to be leading and loving in such a way that would cultivate a desire for submission rather than attempting to coerce submission. In other words, you need to be leading and loving in such a way that your wife and children, if you have them, that they actually want to come under your care and follow your lead. We need to love the way that Jesus loves. Husbands, your wife needs to know that apart from God in Christ, there is no one higher in your life. There is no one who will more fully command your attention, receive your trust, or obtain your love. You forsake your own interests and you prefer your wife first. That is what Jesus has done for us. In other words, we sacrifice for our wives. We sacrifice our needs, our desires, our preferences. This is the context. In the context of Christ-like love that a wife can safely and joyfully submit to her husband. In short, a wife is called to submit to her husband into a context in which she knows her husband is pursuing her ultimate good and God's glory. Wives, I think that Numbers 30 should encourage you to purpose to do bold things for God. I think that Numbers 30 should encourage you to commit to doing 
great things for God. Now, you ought to pursue those great and bold things in consultation with your husband and a willingness to submit to him, recognizing that just as you are God's gift to him and you are a gift from God to him, recognizing that he is also a gift to you. Children, youth, young adults, the same can be said for you. The Lord has placed people in your life for your protection. Your parents may void your vows. They may tell you no. They may tell you that you may not do one thing or another. And if they do, in that moment and the moments following, you need to trust that God is working through them. If there are things in your heart that you want to do for the glory of God, then talk with your parents about that. Talk with them about the nature of promises and what it means to keep them. Like the wives and daughters of Numbers 30, you are called to have a relationship with God. Just as adults are called to know God and worship Him, so are you. Talk with your parents or another mature Christian about that. Singles. I don't know if you knew this, but there are implications for you in this passage too. In verse 9, we read about widows and divorced women. They were those who came out from their husband's protection, either by death or divorce. And when they did, they were on their own, making decisions and having to give an account for those decisions and promises. Their words were their responsibility. Now, for those of you who are single adults, this is something of a parallel for you today. It's not a perfect analogy, I know, but you're in much the same position, having to give an account for your own words and promises. Your parents are no longer exercising veto power over your decisions. To you, brothers and sisters, let me encourage you to pursue integrity. Be known to be a dependable person. Make commitments and keep them for the glory of God. And let me also encourage you to humbly invite wise counsel into your life when you're thinking about making big commitments and promises. Those can be career and job changes, moving from one side of town to the other, contemplating dating or pursuing someone to date. All of the singles in this congregation, I think, have a good head on their shoulders. And yet, just as every married person can stand to use more wisdom in our lives from brothers and sisters in Christ, so can you. Especially since you will bear the weight of your decisions, you would be doubly wise to seek counsel from mature believers in the body. As we conclude, I want us to think about why this material in Numbers 30 was incredibly practical for the people of Israel. This material in the book of Numbers is given to us with the people of Israel standing on the edge of the promised land. They were about to enter and conquer the land. And when they had settled the land, they would begin making commitments and obligations with one another. They would even be making commitments and establishing covenants outside with, with those outside of their nation. In keeping their vows and pledges and promises, they would be a witness to the surrounding nations. Their faithfulness to keep their oaths would bear witness to the watching world what kind of God they served. Yahweh, the God of Israel, was not like the false gods of the surrounding nations. He didn't make decisions on a whim and retract them. He always kept His word. That is what the people of Israel were to testify to in their lives. Brothers and sisters, in view of what Christ has done for us, with that in view, that is also what our lives should testify to. With our words and with our deeds, we should display and proclaim that we belong body and soul to our faithful Savior. Let's pray together.